scripture reading today is from Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and Acts, the first chapter, 6 through 11. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Acts 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power from the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into the heaven. This is God's word. Please be seated. We're going to uh, pray in just a minute and uh, want to, uh, to give you an update on our brother Ben Clements. Uh, we received uh, news uh, just a few minutes ago that he has been moved out of the emergency room into ICU over at uh, Northeast Baptist. So we want to uh, not only pray for God to bless us as we study his word this morning, but also lift up one more time our brother Ben. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we, we say the name Ben Clements in the name of your Son to you, Father, asking you to, to bless him and to, to bless him greatly. In all of the ways, Father, in your wisdom that you see uh, Ben, we ask for that blessing to come upon him. And we pray for, uh, we pray for our church family as we stand before these these two texts one at the end of a gospel the the other at the beginning of a of a a book of history the church and as we think deeply about uh, the events that david has read to us we we're asking you father to to help us to see it with the right kind of eyes and and to hear it with the right kind of ears with eyes and ears father that you have blessed because we choose not to just know these words in our mind, but we, we choose to be transformed. We, we choose to, to be lifted up to the heights in our imagination and, and, and thoughts, Father, uh, as it pertains to the greatness of your character. 
At the same time, Father, we, we repent of the ways that we need to change in order to fulfill these things that, that we're studying this morning. We ask, Father, we ask that you will slow us down in this moment in order to rightly see and to rightly handle this sacred text. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you ask just about any believer that, that you run across, maybe on the street, uh, maybe in a phone conversation, you ask any believer what are the big events in Jesus' life, they usually say, uh, probably first his birth, the incarnation that you find at the beginning of the Gospels, then probably the death and the resurrection. Those are probably the big three. His birth, his death on the cross where he made atonement for sins, his, resurrect, his resurrection, and I would, I would say all of those are pretty big. At least in our nation they are considered to be pretty big because you can find greeting cards surrounding those events in Jesus' life. But you never find a card that somehow touches on the ascension of Jesus' life. But this morning we're going to see that the ascension is oh so important. And, and here's why. Nobody would, would ever build a house. I mean, it would be ridiculous to build a house that no one intended to live in. And nobody ever, it'd be ridiculous. I mean, nobody ever really cooks a meal that nobody is going to eat. And, and nobody would, would, ever, would ever build a rifle without a trigger. And that, in essence, that's why the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus needs what we're going to be studying this morning, the ascension, because the ascension is the trigger. The ascension is the trigger. The ascension takes everything that Christ did on earth and releases it into the universe. I want to say that again. The ascension takes everything Christ did on earth and releases it into the universe. That's why we're going to probe it this morning. And the first thing, the first question or uh, issue, angle of the ascension we want to deal with is what is it? What the ascension properly, biblically is. At the ascension in Acts chapter 1, the angels are looking at the apostles who are, are, are standing around looking up into the sky. And they ask men of Galilee in verse 11, why do you stand looking at the sky? This same Jesus who, came, who, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And here's the question. Why this gentle rebuke by the angels to these apostles? Well, I think it's because the apostles thought of the ascension as the absence of Christ. They've seen him go away. It was the loss of Jesus' leadership, his companionship, it was a loss of His presence that they had known nearly every day of their life for the past three years. It was the loss of His power. All of those things that we have read about in Matthew over the last uh, 13, 14 weeks, they think they've lost that. And because they thought of the ascension that way, they stood around sort of bereft and looking probably a little lost because the meaning of the ascension had not been detonated inside of them yet. The trigger had not been pulled. But when it was pulled, Luke goes on to say at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts that when these apostles returned to Jerusalem, they were devoted to prayer and they were devoted to each other and they worshipped God. They left that mount of ascension full of praise and full of faith in God and they went back into the world like thunderbolts. You see, they began to understand 
that the ascension did not mean the absence of Jesus. What they began to understand is in reality it meant a greater presence of Jesus in their life. The ascension does the opposite of what the apostles thought. It is the increased and heightened presence of Christ. It's not the loss of His leadership or His companionship or influence and power, but the magnification of it. Now, church, I really believe that when we get a hold of the ascension and what it means, it grabs us and it will revolutionize us with joy and confidence and courage and enthusiasm for the kingdom. Now, you know, if you're an Anglophile, you probably spend a lot of time thinking about the royalty and the monarchy in England. And, you know, somewhere in England, they're really, I, I don't know if I've ever seen it, but somewhere in England there's got to be a throne. And wherever that throne is located, you could, technically speaking, although it'd probably be illegal, you could ascend to that throne by walking up some steps to the platform where that, that throne is found, and you could sit down on that throne. But you and I both know that the word ascend means something more than just the action in space, of time, in space and time of going up some steps. If you are a prince of England, to ascend to the throne of England means that you change your relationship with all of the people in England. You are no longer just a regular citizen or even a prince. You're now the king. You are now the one who sits on the throne. Now, now what does that have to do with ascension? This. The ascension of Christ is not space travel, although that's what a lot of people think. And that's the way we sometimes, especially if you're walking down the, the street someplace and you ask, uh, you know, do you believe in God? And somebody will say, uh, yeah, you mean the big man upstairs. And the idea is, is that God is somewhere upstairs, up, up there in heaven someplace. You know, on my birthday, on April 12, 1961, on the day I was born, there was a cosmonaut by the name of Yuri Gagarin who was the very first human being, the very first astronaut, cosmonaut, the Russians, to enter into outer space. And while he was in orbit, Gagarin allegedly said that he did not see God anywhere in space. Now, in actuality, that probably came from Khrushchev's speech on the state's anti-religion campaign where he says in that speech, Gagarin flew into space and he didn't see any God there. But anyone who has read the Bible knows that God does not live in the heavens, plural, which is another way of saying the universe. The ascension does not mean that Christ went to live in another part of the universe in space and in time. Meaning that God does not relate to us like a fellow that lives in the penthouse relates to somebody that lives in the basement. Christ took a body at the incarnation, which means that God did enter that space and time. He lived physically in space with the passage of time like we do. He knows what, it like, what it's like to be a human. And one day in space and time, Christ was in Capernaum, which meant that he was not in Jerusalem. And on another day, he was later in Bethany, which meant that he could not be in Jericho. He is at one place at one time because he was in a physical body. And all the while, he lived a perfect life in that physical body. And then Jesus is taken away from his, his disciples by Israel's religious leaders, and he dies on the cross. And then three days later, he is raised up, as you know, and that's what we call the resurrection. And if Christ, after that resurrection, stays in time and space, He can only be in one place at one time. That's why the Bible says that Christ ascends to heaven. Singular, not the heavens. 
which means that he has ascended to the throne room of God and that he can take everything he was on earth and apply it everywhere at once, just like God the Father. And the ascension is the trigger to that. The ascension is the trigger to all of that. Now you'll remember over in John chapter 20, you know, here's Mary clinging to Jesus. And Jesus says to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my Father. Some of the other translations, I have not yet ascended. You know, for a long time, I thought that what Jesus was telling her is you can't touch me because something strange is going on with my body. And then I began to see that in Luke chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 28, the women do hug him. And he says nothing about that. And he challenges Thomas to put his finger in the places where the, no, the, where the nails made holes in his hands, and the, and the spear made, made, a, made a, a wound in his side. Meaning that touching can't be the problem. What Jesus is saying to Mary is that she needs to let go of him and to let him ascend to the Father. And if she lets him ascend, then he will be with her and everyone else forever and ever. If he ascends, then no one can ever take him away from her. She will never lose him. And what that means is they can put Peter in the deepest jail in Jerusalem and that won't separate him from Christ. And they can exile John on the island of Patmos, but Christ is with him on that island. And, and, they, can, and they can take Paul and they can stone him and they can leave him in jail and they can oppress him, but that never separates him from Christ. The ascension is the trigger that released what Jesus was on earth throughout the entire universe. Which brings us to the next issue. What does that mean then for us? If the ascension is what takes everything that Jesus was and releases it into the universe, what does that mean? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus, when are you going to establish the kingdom? When are you going to, to establish the, the kingdom? And in verse 8, Jesus says, it's not you as in me, but it's you. When will you establish the kingdom? They seem to have forgotten that Jesus has commissioned them to go into all the world. Jesus, in, in one of those last opportunities to talk to the disciples, says, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations. All nations. And here's how you do it. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and you teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I want you to know this. As you go throughout the entire world and all the nations making disciples, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, they had been with Jesus for three years. And they are reeling now that the greatest teacher in history, in the history of the world, mind you, is now gone at the ascension. I mean, think about everything that you've learned over the last 13 weeks about Matthew in your Bible classes, from, from our, our, our study time, uh, our, our messages in the, in the worship times. No one spoke with the kind of wisdom and authority that Jesus spoke with. Most of all, no one spoke the kind of truth that, that liberated people. You remember back in John chapter 8, Jesus says that when you believe my truth, which is an ultimate truth, there's no truth that is more important 
more powerful. There is no truth more truthful than the words that I speak to you. And guess what? When you submit yourself to them and you believe them and you accept them and you eat them and, and, you, and you embrace them with all that you are, that truth will set you free. And people did experience liberation. And they experienced freedom when they put themselves wholeheartedly in that truth. What a speaker, a teacher, a master teacher. But now he's gone. They saw him disappear into the clouds. Now how is Jesus' teaching and ministry going to continue? Well, today one of the obvious answers is the Bible. But the answer that is not always so obvious to us is that if you are a Christian and you tell somebody else the gospel, then Christ is speaking through you. I want you to look at a couple of passages out of Ephesians 2 and 4. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is the one that is writing to a church in Asia Minor in the city of Ephesus. And the church is there, and it's, it's, it's a, a very cosmopolitan place, and, and the people there are very intelligent, and, and, uh, there's, there, but there's, there's some problems in the church. And, and Paul is writing back and reminding them of all of the great things that got, to, got them spiritually to where they were on that day. And he reminds them of all of the riches and all of the great things that God is doing in their life. And he's reminding them that God has put His Spirit in it to strengthen them and there was a, a certain way to live. But it all began because they heard the Gospel. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now who in verse 17 is that He? The Christ. And then you go to chapter 4, verse 21. I'm using the New American Standard Version of the Bible because it's more literal than our NIVs. Verse 21 says of chapter 4, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught Him just as truth is in Jesus. Now here's my question. When was Jesus ever in Ephesus? When was Jesus ever in Ephesus. Jesus had never been to Ephesus. But Paul is writing that when the Ephesians heard the gospel, they heard Christ. And we are those teachers who have been entrusted with the liberating message of the gospel. Now let me push you a little bit further. As you know, we've been studying Matthew the last three months. It's a large book. We have not had the opportunity to cover it verse by verse, which we like to do in this church. But I want to go back to chapter 11 that we did not spend a whole lot of time with, uh, at least in, in the preaching part of, of this series. And you know as well as I do, that's that story, that, that episode where Jesus receives the disciples of John the Baptist. And John is in prison at this point, and he's, he's wondering whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah because he doesn't really fit the kind of Messiah that John's looking for. Jesus and John don't really look a whole lot alike when it comes to their personality. So he sends these disciples and Jesus says, you go tell John what it is you see. And he, he lists all of these miracles. And he says, and blessed is the one who does not stumble or take offense because of me. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, what did you expect to go see? A prophet? So he's thinking that, you know, he's talking about John as a prophet. He says, what did you go expect to see? A prophet? Yes, I'll tell you, and more than a prophet. Do you expect to go see somebody with, with the clothes of a king and the fine clothes of a rich person? Did you go and expect to see uh, you know, this, this, this reed that is being you know, moved back and forth by the wind? 
And then he says in verse 11, let me tell you about John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And then he says, yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Have you ever puzzled over that? I mean, I, it probably means a lot of things, but I know it means at least this. A, a believer, a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, even the weakest one in history of Christianity. I mean, I, you know, we've never had a staff meeting where we sat around and talked about, you know, I wonder who the weakest Christian of all time in the kingdom of God has ever been. None of you made the list. <laughs> you think about it. Even the, the weakest person, the Christian, the disciple of Jesus, is greater as a prophet. Remember, that's context. He's talking about what did you expect to see a, a prophet? Yes, and more. The weakest one in the kingdom is, is, is a greater prophet, prophet than John because even that weakest of all the weak disciples in all of the, 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 the places that the kingdom has been established, they have a message, a gospel message that John was never able to preach. This is not a statement about John's morality or courage. John was at the top of that list. John was not afraid to die, and he lived his life as a Nazarite, which meant that morally he was impeccable. There was nothing that you could, you could claim against his life. John was a great man. Nobody, morally and courageously speaking, was greater than John the Baptist, but he didn't have that message. The weakest, most spiritually feeble Christian can preach a truth about Christ that liberates people, that death and that burial and that resurrection that John never knew while he was alive. You know something that John did not know. And that's how the Great Commission gets done. That's how the Great Commission gets done. All of life is different because of Jesus and His, and his message still rings forth through us. And so this should really humble us should really humble us. We represent the one who loved everyone. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Christ embodied what it meant to love other people. The question is, how are we doing? You know, back at the ascension, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, when are you going to establish your kingdom? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You, not me, you are going to be establishing that kingdom. And not only should it make us really humble, but at the same time, the ascension should give us great courage. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. For us in God's presence. You know, one of the great heroes in the early days of the church and in the latter days of the church to this day Stephen is a hero of the faith, and he was a deacon of the church. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being lynched for his faith. He's being lynched because of what he believes about Jesus. And here's the thing. When you read that account, uh, Luke's account at, at the beginning of Acts about Stephen's martyrdom, he's being lynched, he's being stoned to death. Stephen doesn't flip out. Stephen doesn't flip out. He faces that death 
with, with poise, and, and, and he faces that death, death peacefully. What was it, what was it that gave Stephen the courage to face his own unjust death? What was it that helped Stephen hold fast when those stones began to hit and, and to crush the bones and the flesh of his body? What was it? It was a glimpse of the now ascended Christ in the presence of God for us. And as he's being executed, what does he say? Verse 59, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now where did he get that? The forgiveness, the peace, the composure, especially in light of the fact that he's being told by his enemies, those that are trying to kill him, that he is ugly, that he is a blasphemer, that he is such a, 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 a terrible individual that he deserves to be condemned and he deserves not just to die, but to die a dreadful death. But Stephen saw the ascended Christ in the presence of God for us. Stephen saw the ascended Christ and, and saw the beauty of it all. Now listen, you know, in, intellectually, there was nothing new. I mean, he knew that Christ was his Savior. He had got that fact straight. In fact, he had preached a great sermon about it. But when he saw the ascended Christ at the right hand of God for us, he knew that the accusations that were being leveled at him were a lie because God saw him as a son. Now, how do you feel at times? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like a failure. I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel pretty ugly. And I hate to admit it, but there are times when I, I think ugly thoughts and I say ugly things. Have you ever felt condemned? And maybe you didn't feel condemned from this, this legal, forensic, you know, courtroom standpoint, but you felt condemned in the sense of, I am chained to something that, that is unpleasant and painful and a burden and terrible for me to live with and I am condemned to live like this or at this level or with this ugliness for the rest of my life. But are you a disciple who believes in the ascension of Jesus? To the degree that you believe and understand the ascension, it, it affects you and the way that you handled that adversity in this life. And other people's verdicts on you are going to have no consequence. I mean, just, just imagine what, the, what can be said to you as you try to share your faith, as you try to live out. You, you know, there have been lots of times in, the, in, in, in church history where people have, have wanted to say that Jesus only meant those words in Matthew chapter 28 to be understood uh, by those disciples and pertaining only to them. And, you know, they say nobody else was there. He was just talking to them. It doesn't apply to anybody else. It's just to the disciples. Let me tell you, that's not the way the early church understood it. The early church understood that they were a part of that great commissioning because they too were experiencing the ascension of Jesus into the heavens. And when the Bible 
says in the early parts of Acts that, that, uh, that they were preaching the word everywhere they went as the persecution of Stephen dispersed the church throughout Judea and Samaria and church was leaving Jerusalem for the first time. Why do you think they were preaching it everywhere they went? It's because they were preaching it at home. And you think about when you preach it at home, all of the things that people can level and say and look at you with and, and, and you just you think about all of those things. But when the ascension is triggered inside of you and detonates inside of you, other people's verdicts on you have no consequence. What people think of you or say about you or your faith or say to your face about your Lord is of no consequences. And when the ascension detonates inside of you, people will not be able to make you hate them. They're not going to pull you down. The, the glimpse of the ascended Christ made the execution secondary to Stephen. And if you get the, the, the ascension right in your mind and in your heart, if you get the ascension down, then you go out into the world like thunderbolts. Just like they did. Ben's going to lead us in a song. We've been studying all, all quarter the Gospel of Matthew. You've heard everything that you need to know about Jesus. You, you have heard everything you need to know about Jesus, whether or not He is worthy, whether or not... He is truly the Son of God, whether or not He died on the cross to save you from your sins, whether or not that sacrifice on the cross was, was, was true and valuable and worthy of your, of, of, in God's eyes for you to be forgiven. You know about the resurrection. You know about what it is that He is trying to do and trying to change your life and, and to help you to understand that the life that you live in the world is not the life that you were designed to live, that, you, that God intends for you to live, that God wants you to live. That when you come into His kingdom and you believe that truth, it not only liberates you from your sin, but it liberates you and, and, and to this life that is significant in, in ways that are extraordinarily beyond the, the ability for us to describe them a lot of the time. But we see it in people's eyes as they go through their illnesses and their cancers and the death of loved ones. And there is not that, that emptiness and that vacuum of hope, but there is a tremendous anticipation of reunion because God is good and He takes care of His people and He's working everything to, a, to, to renewal. And, 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 and uh, it can be yours. It can be yours. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross to save you from your sins? The answer is yes. Are you ready for Him to be the Lord of your life and to commit yourself to Him and to His way of life, His kingdom, to be a member of His body, the church, that He shed His blood for, to be baptized, your sins to be washed away, to repent and to always move in the direction of God, to confess on a daily basis that He is Lord and ready to share the joy and the peace and the exuberance and the blessedness that comes because of that life with everyone else because the ascended Christ at the right hand of God is with you always. That describes you this morning. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them about what you desire. And we can take care of that this morning. I beg you, do not tarry, do not wait, do not delay.
but come as we stand and sing together.